So welcome. Uh, glad to be here with you all this morning, worshiping together uh, this Sunday morning after Easter. You know, we just finished our big Easter sermon series there for six weeks, and we're going to move on to something else. We're going to talk about great faith, okay? We're going to be talking about faith that we can find in Scripture for three weeks or so, maybe more, depending on how I feel about it. Uh, but this, this week, I was caught up in this idea of faith after reading a certain story. But before we go there, I want us to read this together, okay? From Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Okay, that is the definition we typically give when we talk about faith. It's the definition that we have in our minds, right? At least that's the very first place that I go when I think about faith. This faith that we have in Christ, it brings us into a relationship with Jesus. It allows us to have a relationship with Jesus. Faith is extremely important to have that relationship in order for us to continue our faith journey. And now we describe faith in this way when we talk about our relationship with Christ, but we use faith every single day, right? We use faith in a variety of ways. The first thing I think about is when I'm driving my car, and I'll get to that in a second. Okay. So I think about faith uh, when I drive my car. I'm not a mo- an automobile expert, okay? Uh, typically when I start my car, that's all I want it to do is start and hopefully blow air conditioning, right? I don't really care about the ins and outs, but I know that I have faith that when I start my car and I turn my wheel to the right, the tires are also going to go to the right, right? There's this faith that I have. I don't know the inner workings of what's going on with the axle or the wires or the, I don't know. I'm sounding more and more like dumb as I speak about cars, right? (laughs) But I have faith that when I turn my wheel and when I push the button or when I turn the key, things are going to happen, okay? And I think about it in a very, very small term like that because it kind of helps me understand this. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance what we do not see. I don't know what's going on, but I know it's going on, okay? And I think maybe on a more complex level, taking it from this small example of the car to the relationships we have with our loved ones, right? Think of maybe a family member or a friend or a husband or a wife, a son or daughter, whatever it might be. There's some faith built into that relationship as well, right? You have time spent together, experiences had together to where you have faith that person is going to respond a certain way to you when you interact, Right? I've, I've been with my wife for a long time now, and I have faith that our relationship is solid because of the time we've spent together, right? The arguments that we've had together, the, the, the good times we had together, all those things combine to me having faith in a strong relationship with my wife. Okay, those are two very different things, right? Talking about the faith that we have in our automobiles, right? The things that we kind of rely on, maybe, and also family members, It is the same idea when we talk about faith in Christ. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for, right? The car, hoping that it's going to start. The relationship that we've put time and effort into. What we hope for and assurance what we do not see. There's so much that's taking place in both these things that collectively go towards our understanding of those things. Are you with me? It becomes very difficult when it becomes about our relationship with Christ. Because we can see our automobile. We can see our spouse, our son, our daughter, our loved one. It's much more complex when it comes to our relationship with Christ. 
Now, there's definitely faith involved. There's definitely this hope involved. But it's difficult because it is hard to experience it in the same way we experience everything else in our lives. Hebrews makes it sound so simple and easy, right? This is such a great definition. I'm going to say it again. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. It sounds like that's something I should easily be able to do. I should be able to have faith in those situations where it's hard to see because I know I have hope in Christ. It is easy to say that, but it's difficult to live it, right? Maybe I'm the only one. You guys are quiet, right? It's difficult to live this out because sometimes life is messy. There are times in life where it's very easy to see Christ at work. I remember vividly when my son and my daughter was born, I could see Christ at work. That is life being brought into this world. That is awesome. But there are times in life where it's not so easy. And when I read Hebrews chapter 11, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance in what we do not see. I don't have much faith because things aren't going my way. It's hard to see Christ in those situations. And it's very difficult to have faith in Jesus during those times. And because of that, my relationship with Jesus suffers. My relationship with Jesus suffers when I'm unable to lean on my faith, when I'm unable to rely on those things I cannot see because I'm struggling. And I know you've been there too. I'm joking before when I say I'm the only one who's been through it because that's the fact of life, right? We all go through situations where it's difficult to see Christ. But through this series, I hope to challenge us. It's been a challenge to me to build up what we believe to be our faith, to build up our faith so that we can have confidence in what we hope for and assurance in what we do not see. So that when we go through difficult times, it'll be easier to see Jesus in those times. In all of that, I don't have this figured out. Okay? I do not have this understood to a point where I am an expert But I've been challenged by this, and I hope to challenge you with it as well. I want our desire for a deeper faith to grow out of this, okay? Are you with me? Let's read Luke 7, 1 through 10. I'll read it this time, okay? When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they had come to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, This man deserves to have you do this, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And I tell that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. So there's a lot to unpack here. And like I said before, I was struck by Luke 7 this week. 
Okay, and it's because of the centurion, right? We have these depictions of centurions in movies, and they're oftentimes in New Testament uh, scripture. And who are they? So I, I did a little bit of research, and I found just some basic information about what centurions were about, okay? These guys were lifetime soldiers, okay? They went into the Roman army in order to be soldiers, okay? These men were literate. They could read and they could write. They were expertly skilled in all forms of combat and strategy that the Romans were putting out. And if you know anything about history, Rome did all right for a while, okay, in this area, okay? They were okay. <laughs> so these guys were very skilled, very knowledgeable, and very wise. But the thing that really stood out to me about centurions is that they don't come from noble birth, okay? They weren't placed in these positions just randomly, right? You have certain, sometimes military outfits where these commanders or whoever it might be are placed with these soldiers, are placed in these armies in order to do whatever they're needed to do in that specific situation. Centurions were brought up within the ranks of their corp or, or group, right? They were usually voted on by fellow soldiers or brought up by their former centurions, and the other thing about centurions is that they didn't just sit back and strategize with their brains, right? They were out there carrying swords and shields as well, defending Rome and increasing Rome's, you know, authority throughout many places. These centurions were on the front lines with their people, battling side by side. And they got to their positions by being people who would lead other people into battle, right? Right? They would be the type of guys that you would lean on and want to go into battle with them because they are right beside you. Now, with all that information, I think it makes it interesting, this interaction between Jesus and the centurion. I mentioned all of this to underscore how this man just carried himself in his life. Because, yes, as a Roman soldier, he has all this wealth of knowledge and experience. But what makes him a centurion is his ability to lead people his ability to relate to people and have them follow him into battle. And I find it interesting, so, so interesting, that when we look at Luke 7, 3 through 5, this is the interaction we have. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of, uh, excuse me, some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they had come to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, why? This man deserves to have you do this. Because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. It's very interesting to me. It's very interesting that an occupying force as big and as brutal as Rome was has this type of man in this situation where the local people actually like him to be there. Right? He deserves you to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. He has gone far enough to where his leadership extends beyond his military outfit, but he's just the kind of guy people want to be around. Right? He's the kind of guy who, even though they have different race, maybe different language, different whatever it might be, this man deserves to have you do this. Can you imagine just the layers to this conversation that are going, that's going on? These Jewish elders, these people who have been around who might be even beacons of some kind of authority within their community are going on behalf of this Gentile, probably pagan, to a very high-level teacher and asking him to do something. It's interesting. 
I think it tells us a lot about who the centurion was as a man, says about his social standing, not only in his military outfit, but among the people he surrounded himself with outside of his people. And at this, Jesus was intrigued, and he goes to him, but he's met by another group of people. Luke 7, 6, B and 8. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed, for I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go, and he goes, and that one come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. Jesus is met along the road, not by Jewish elders this time, but by the friends of the centurion. We have two different people groups going on behalf of the centurion, on behalf of the centurion's servant. Do you see how many levels this is going down? It just screams to me that the centurion is a man that cares about the people around him. Right? And not a superficial way, but in a way to where they're going to speak on behalf of the centurion. And not even just on the behalf of the centurion, but the centurion's servant. It is hard to say centurion over and over and over again. <laughs> I'm trying my best to slow down, but it's a tough word to say all, all a lot. And this is what strikes me here. We have these two different groups, right? The Jewish elders, the friends. And this is Jesus' response to what they have to say. I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. The faith of this pagan, probably pagan, Gentile, occupying soldier has greater faith than anyone he's met in Israel, speaking very, very hyperbolically about the faith of this centurion man. And i got to ask myself the question, why? What makes the centurion stand out so much to Jesus? Is it the people? Probably. Is it what they're saying? Yes. But there's so much there that that the centurion is saying. I think it boils down to what he says here. He does not consider himself worthy to be in the presence of Jesus. He does not consider himself worthy to approach him with this request as Luke tells the story. Now, if you go over to Matthew, there's a different depiction of what happens here. The centurion does speak directly to Jesus. But what I think Luke is trying to get us to understand is that there is a deep, deep level of humility that the centurion is showing that he wants to teach everybody about. This humility is what makes Jesus stop in his tracks and go to this man's house. It's what makes him stop and say, this faith is greater than anyone I've met in all of Israel. Is because his humility is so deep and so grand. This is what he says uh, through his friends here in Luke. I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. What the centurion understands is, yes, he is a humble man, but he understands what Jesus is bringing to the table. Jesus' authority is ultimate. And he recognizes that he, as a man of authority, recognizes Jesus' authority far supersedes what he has and is able to do. And again, what did we talk about the centurions, right? They had many men under them, and they worked their way up their ranks, but they even had men above them telling them where to go and what to do. And in that, that man learned what true authority was, and he sees Jesus and says, Jesus is different. And because of that, I am unworthy. And because of that, I believe you have something to offer me I could not understand on my own. 
it's kind of similar to me when, I, when I'm in the presence of, of a master of their craft. Right? I've played golf with a lot of good players before, but I've, I've had the opportunity to play with some professionals before, and it's next level. Okay? It is next level. Where I'm over here hitting into the woods and in the water, sometimes these guys seem to have everything perfect. They step over a 40-foot putt, and in my mind I'm saying it's going in. No doubt. Sometimes I get on YouTube and I watch people draw, and you know, I sketch every now and then. I'm not the worst. But you watch a master artist at work and how their brush strokes are purposeful. Every single thing they do, every single piece of paint or ounce of paint that's on the canvas is purposeful. And even when it seems like they've made a mistake, right? Bob Ross, little happy accidents, right? It's not a mistake because in the, in the hand of a master, they're able to do something. And now I'm not a professional golfer, and you guys might not be professional artists, but you know when you're in the presence of a master, you just see that there's something different about that person, and what they do is at another level. I think a similar thing is happening here with the centurion. He understands authority. He understands what it means to be in control. He's probably been in control of his life for a very long time, and when he sees Jesus, he recognizes that man is different, and I must go to him the master at work. The centurion's response to this type of authority is, I am unworthy. And this is, the humility is what amazes Jesus, like I said before. The humility of the centurion to be able to see the authority of Jesus and, and, and just recognize that he is not worthy to be in his presence. The centurion understands more than even Israel, okay? And I do not think it's an accident. If we look back in Luke chapter 6, okay? This is what Luke 6 says. Everybody do this with me, okay? You guys remember this one? Um, what is it? The wise man built his... You don't have to sing, okay? You can if you want to in your heads. This is in the context of the wise man building his house upon the rock and the foolish man building his house upon the sand. And before Jesus talks about those two men who build their house in the rock and build their house in the sand, Jesus says this, Why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? Do you see what he's getting at? Those disciples, those who are actually following Christ, are doing what Jesus says. And then we have this interaction where the, the centurion man looks at Jesus and says, you are a man of authority, and I'm going to do what you say. There is this sense that the centurion is much more a disciple than even many people in Israel because he understands this part right here. Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say. The centurion says, I'm going to do what you say because you are a man of great authority and I am unworthy to be in your presence. That is a humility that I don't think I'm able to understand just yet. It's this idea that he recognizes that he doesn't have everything. Even as a man of great political and, and military status as him, he recognizes he doesn't have it all. But Jesus does. And what strikes me about this is how genuine this humility is. And now I'm going to steal a joke from Chip. If Chip's out here, Chip always says that his best trait is his humility, right? You know, uh, he's not in here. Oh, yeah, there he is right there. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a great trait. He's a, it's a great, humble guy. But it's a joke because, you know, if you're saying you're humble, you're not really humble, right? And there is this genuine, humble attitude that you can just see it through his life that all the interactions we've had up to this point is just displayed in full view, right? Who goes to, on his behalf first? 
People that aren't even his people. The Jewish elders go on behalf of him. His friends go on behalf of him. In the very beginning, the centurion is going on behalf of his servant. There is this genuine humility in every aspect of this man's life that when he comes to Jesus, Jesus recognizes how true and genuine it is. This humility moves Jesus to just excitement, amazement at how deep it is. It reminds me of one of my favorite teachers I ever had. His name is Dr. Youngblood. He was, he's probably the most intelligent man I've ever met in my life. And he would tell us as, you know, as um, we're getting our, you know, four-year bachelor's degree, he would say the only thing a bachelor's degree is good for is telling you how much you don't know. And then you go to grad school, and you go from learning how much you don't know to learning how much there is to know in grad school. And then if you go beyond that, if you get your doctorate, you realize you know a little tiny bit about one thing that's very specific in a vast pool of things that you still don't know. And it's so funny because I would look up to him. He's the smartest guy I know, but he has the humility to recognize that I don't have it all figured out. As students were looking up to him and saying, man, you got it all figured out. You know everything there is to know. This man would sit before school with his high school age daughter and they would speak Koine Greek together. That's weird, okay? They don't speak Koine Greek is what the New Testament was written in, okay? It's dead language. But he'd be speaking it with his daughter over breakfast. <laughs> it's very odd. He was so, so smart, but yet he was still able to understand there is still so much more to know in life, and not just life, but to know about Christ and to know about God, that I'm just unworthy. There's so much more to know. There's so much more to do. And the more you realize that you need to know and the more that you realize you need other people, I think the more that you realize that you don't have it figured out in this world. Nobody has it figured out. It's one of those, it's the age-old saying, right, to be selfless doesn't mean to just forget yourself, but it's to think of yourself less, right? When you take on the humility that the centurion is witnessing to us here, you are thinking of yourself less and other people notice, and they want to be in your sphere. That is what we have exactly happening here, right? We have people going on behalf of the centurion for him because not only has, does he have great humility towards Christ, but he has great humility in all of his circles. That is what amazes Jesus, the same is true when we look at the life of Christ. We talk about the centurion being humble, having this great humility. Let's look at this together. If, if the centurion doesn't make you want to be humble, I bet you this will. Philippians 2, 6-7, talking about Christ. Who being the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. This is Jesus, remember. He made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of his servant, being made in human likeness. Gods don't typically take on flesh, okay? But when we read about Jesus, that's exactly what he did, and he did it willingly. I talk about this pursuit that God has had of humanity since the very beginning of time, where God keeps coming towards people, towards people closer and closer, and over and over again, people turn their backs on God to the point where God says, you know what, I'm going to take on flesh and dwell among these people. For God to step down and take this on, right, to take allergies on, to take on relationships with other people on, to take bitterness and greed and evil that's in this world on in human flesh, 
That is humility. And it's because Jesus understands humility that when he looks at the centurion, he's amazed by his faith because he's doing a similar thing. Just as the centurion looks to Christ and says, you have the ultimate authority, I'm not worthy to be in your place, Christ looks to the centurion and says, you and I are very similar here. You are humbling yourself to me just as I humble myself to the world. You are right to humble yourself to me because I am the ultimate authority. And because of that, he blesses the centurion and the servant. From this place that we just read in Philippians 2, Christ was lifted up. It was from his humble place that he was lifted up. And it was from this place of humility that the centurion brought that his servant was lifted up. Christ recognized that humility and acted because that's what his life is all about. Taking on flesh and being humble. So what does that mean for us? As we look at this in the context of great faith and, and, and expanding our faith so that when we're going through situations that we don't quite understand, how can we deepen our faith? We need to look at this image of humility and say, what does this mean for me? Okay, the first thing. I think we need to do in response to this is scary. But we need to honestly seek feedback from people that we respect about our humility. I had the opportunity to do this with three people just recently for a, a class I was taking, and it was not very fun. Um, because I asked people that I deeply respected, who knew me as a person, who knew me as a minister, and I asked them honest questions about me, and they gave me honest feedback. They illuminated things that I did not know about myself. But in illuminating those things, I'm able to work more efficiently. What I'm asking for you to do is for you to ask people that you respect about how you're doing in your humility. This is going to be difficult, like I said, because you don't want to just ask the same the person who's going to tell you what you want to hear, right? Because if you ask your biggest fan, what are they going to say? You're the best. You don't have to change anything. Guess what those people are? They're not your friends. They're not your fans. They don't want to see what's best for you because they're not asking you to become a more humble person through that kind of interaction. See, we have this centurion who has two people speaking on his behalf because the people in his circles, they see his humility and they want to do something for him. The best way to recognize that you are not a very easy person to work with is that people don't work with you. <laughs> if you are not a humble person, if you are difficult and you know everything, people are not going to want to work with you. You're going to look around and say, I don't have very much help. That might have more to do with you than it has to do with everybody else. And that is a difficult thing to realize. I'm trying not to be mean here. But a lot of us think we know more than we do. And when we talk about our relationships, with, our relationships with each other and our relationship with Christ, we have to work on our humility. We cannot be the people who know all about this in our facts, all this in our brains, but do nothing with it within our hearts. Because if you know the facts of this and it doesn't go from here to here, all this is another textbook for you. If your life is not emulating this, hum this humility that we see in the centurion and the humility that we seek in Christ, you are not emulating the words that you're reading from this book. This humility will, will grow your faith because you're going to be able to see yourself in the light that's different. You're going to be able to lift other people above yourself, right? What does Romans talk about, right? 
Never be lacking in zeal, right? To honor your brother above yourself. To always be seeking ways to honor people. And this isn't a way to make yourself a, a doormat, to be walked over all the time, because did the centurion do that? No, absolutely not. But because of the way that he holds himself, because of the way he interacts with people, they want to be in his circle and do things on his behalf. And so when we look at that type of humility, you don't become a doormat, you become part of a team. You become part of a family. And when families in the, in the church work together, crazy radical things take place. If we could just be more humble in groups, a lot of good work could be done for the kingdom of God. It is hard for people to work with me sometimes. I lack the ability to communicate. I lack the ability to sometimes be forthcoming with knowledge that I think is silly or, or dramatic, Right? I don't want to always share everything, but guess what I'm doing when I do that? I'm thinking more of myself than other people. I think I got it all together, when in reality, I definitely don't. I'm telling you guys my scars. I hope you guys share with each other yours, okay? I am definitely not perfect, but I'm seeking to be more collaborative, seeking to be more in this mindset of saying, how can I be more humble and lift you above myself? I have not yet achieved this, but I'm striving towards this every day. And I hope that when you honestly seek feedback from someone who's going to tell you the truth, you have a similar experience. The second thing, this is a challenge for you this week, okay? I challenge everybody in here to read Philippians 2, 1 through 11 every single day. This week, only seven days, okay? We've already read it, some part of it today. But for seven days... I want us all as a church to be reading Philippians 2, 1 through 11 and see what it does for your day. See what it does to your mindset as you interact with a person that's difficult to work with. Because if we read Philippians 2, 1 through 11 and we read about what Jesus does before, hold on, let's just look at it really quick, okay? Let's, if you have your Bibles, be in Philippians chapter 2. If I can get there. First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, Titus, and finally, did I pass it? Philippians, Colossians. There it is. Okay, I still have to sing to you guys. Okay, if we look in Philippians chapter two, before he, before Paul even goes into this talk about Jesus humbling himself, and in verse five it says this: "In your relationships with one another." Okay, that's very direct. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ. And then it goes into talking about how Jesus humbled himself. And from that place, from his humbled state, God lifted him up. If we seek to do the same thing in our relationships with one another, guess what he's going to do within our relationships? He's going to lift everybody up. An incoming tide raises all ships, right? This tide of being humble, of seeking humility over our own mindset, over our own agendas, is what we need more of in this world. And I think if we focus on Philippians chapter 2, 1 through 11 for a week, I guarantee the Spirit's going to do a work in your heart. So that's my challenge to you this week, is to read Philippians 2, 1 through 11 every single day, at least once. And maybe share it with somebody. Share somebody, share with somebody what you're taking away from Philippians 2, 1 through 11. The thing about humility is that you can continue to be more and more humble as you go through life, and I think that's how it usually works. You realize more and more 
that you don't know everything. And my prayer is that as a church, we can collectively say, you know what? We're not going to lean on our own understanding, right? We're not going to lean on what Jimmy has to say. It doesn't matter who's standing up here, guys. It really does not matter. If we are a church seeking this type of discipleship movement, this, this type of just spirit-filled humility, God's going to do a great work in this church, right? But we have to seek it together. We have to seek humility together. And when we do this, great things will happen. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this day, and I thank you for your example. I thank you for the example of the centurion and his friends and just seeing just how humility has the ability to change people around us. God, I pray that we're able to be more humble. We do not have anything figured out in comparison to you. All that we do know is rubbish, as Paul would say. Everything that we have accumulated in our lives is so momentary in comparison to the surpassing wealth of knowing you, God. And I pray that as we go through our lives, as we interact with one another, we're able to be more humble, humble ourselves to our spouses, to our children, to our friends, to our coworkers, so that people look at us and they say, there's something different about you, and we want to be a part of it. God, help us to be more humble together as a church, leaning on each other as we lean collectively on your understanding. In Jesus, let me pray. Amen. I pray that as we seek humility, our faith is encouraged. I, f- I pray that as we seek humility, our faith will be, will be built up together. But if you are in a place this morning where you, do, where you do not have faith, where you are seeking but you are not finding, I pray that you make those requests known. You don't have to come forward. But find somebody today and talk to them about where your faith's at and how this impact of humility might build that up a little bit. If you have any needs at all, please let it be known as we come and stand and sing.